Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco Radio. This week, Mexico decriminalizes abortion nationwide. Women's movements have been taking this issue very strongly in the last three to four decades, campaigning and campaigning more successfully in some countries than in others. You can see in the southern cone, the story is very different from Central America, for instance. So there has been some success and they're still campaigning all over the region. Plus, we have a new host for the menu. Recently, a friend of mine asked me to list the five true joys of my existence. And she started off reeling hers and smelling flowers and going for a run. And I listed eating out at number one. And then I kind of stopped because I was like, what else is there? This is it. All that and much more here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Big news from Mexico this week. It is two years since Mexico's Supreme Court ruled in favor of a challenge to anti-abortion laws in the state of Coahuila. And now the same court has now decriminalized abortion nationwide, ruling that denying access to abortion was a violation of the human rights of Mexican women. Monaco's Andrew Muller spoke with Natalia Sobrevilla Perea, professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent. Natalia, will this settle the argument in Mexico or will there be further objections? I'm sure there will be further objections in the future because there is no end to this debate. Even in places where it has been decriminalized, like Argentina, there's still possibilities of it being reinstated. Uh, we will come to the, the broader picture across Latin America, but in, in Mexico City, where is any pushback likely to come from? Will it be from the federal government or will it be from across Mexico from the church? It will definitely be from the church and the conservative groups that are very strong in Mexico. How much of a say do they still have in what, you know, in, in what government gets to do in Mexico, though? Is the church as powerful as it might have been 20 or 30 years ago? No, it's a losing power and it's losing support. And Mexico City itself is a very liberal place where there's also um, gay rights and there's gay marriage and there's a a lot of openness. But still, there is the risk that the church will try to bring other regions into the discussion where there's more conservative groups. And there's still quite a space for pushback. It It remains to be seen how successful this pushback will be or could be. But there will certainly be some pushback. I mean, this decision by Mexico, of course, to, to decriminalize, certainly liberalize abortion comes just as the country north of the border appears to be proceeding in the opposite direction. Is this likely to create uh, a, a market in Mexico for Americans seeking abortions? It is possible. There's a market for medical services just south of the border for dentistry, for all kinds of procedures that are much more accessible economically in Mexico. So I wouldn't be surprised that given the way things are going in the United States, that this would be the case. Well, let's take a look at the broader picture across Latin America. How has this been shifting in recent decades? Obviously, as is the case with many European countries, uh, Latin America, largely Catholic and objections to abortion uh, have been rooted in that. How has it changed and why has it changed? 
Well, uh, there's a very long-standing fight to gain rights to abortion. Some of the uh, 1920s constitutions of Latin American countries already accepted therapeutical abortion. So there was some openness, but this was never implemented because the Catholic Church is so strong. Uh, but women's movements have been taking this issue very strongly in the last three to four decades, campaigning and campaigning successively and more successfully in some countries than in others. You can see in the southern cone, the story is very different from Central America, for instance. So there, there has been some success and they're still campaigning all over the region. But in those countries which have liberalised their approach to abortion, one thinks probably notably of bigger countries like Argentina and Colombia. Have we seen the heat go out of the argument there as well? Or does it look more like the United States where there were still determined conservative factions uh, who thought they could restore it one day? Well, if you look at the presidential campaign in Argentina this year, Millet, who is the person who got most votes in the first round, he is already talking with the conservative groups and wanting to push back against this, these liberal measures. Uh, and this is in Argentina. I mean, there are in Latin America a few countries which are notably hardcore on this. Haiti, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, which still prohibit abortion in most, if not all, circumstances. Is there anything ever likely to shift in those? I find that very difficult to, to, to see. I mean, the situation in Haiti is so disastrous on so many levels that this is probably one of the last things on people's agendas. Nicaragua moving away from democracy at very speedy pace. Again, a very conservative country. It's the same with El Salvador, not looking likely. In fact, in some of these countries, women who have natural miscarriages are also being penalized. So this is an conservative view in countries such as these. But in those countries, though, is the the conviction against abortion exclusively religious or is, is it part of or is it advanced as part of a, a broader conservative, indeed hyper conservative agenda? It combines both things. They, there is kind of, those are fellow travelers. The conservative Catholics are finding allies in the conservative movement in general in the whole region. You can see that in Peru as well. But with Mexico, a obviously huge and influential country, especially in Central America, making this decision, does it create a momentum for smaller countries in Central America? Do they tend to go uh, where Mexico leads? You could hope that is the way, but I, I don't see that happening, at least in the short term. And we should just look ahead in Mexico to its presidential election next year. It's very likely to be contested by two women. Um, Whichever way that turns out, will that be seen as likely to entrench rights like this for women? Well, it really depends on which of the women candidates is elected. I mean, you cannot assume in Latin America that women are going to looking after women's rights. You can see that with President of Peru, Dina Boluarte, with Yane Yanos in Bolivia, being a woman doesn't necessarily make someone a liberal. You are listening to The Curator here on Monaco Radio. And as you know, listeners, every week I do a global countdown, looking at the top songs in different countries. This week was a fun one. For the first time, I went to Turkmenistan. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, welcome uh, to the studio. You are here with The Global Countdown. Who is the lucky country? 
Turkmenistan. And right. I have my reasons. And sometimes they're very, ra- <laughs> they're very random. The other day I went on a rabbit hole at home listening to... Not, uh, not literally, I hope. N- not literally. Listening to some synth pop from the 80s from Turkmenistan. And I was like, oh my God, this is pretty good. God, it's, it's all go round your place on the summer <laughs> evening, <laughs> exactly. isn't it? Let's, let's all go round to Fernando's and listen to some 80s synth pop from Turkmenistan. It was all very random. And then I decided to say, you know what? What are Turkmen listening right now? Are they still listening to those great synth pop tracks? Perhaps not, but we should explore, right, Andrew? Um, we should. I mean, it is worth mentioning that Turkmenistan is a, a notably uh, <laughs> odd country, or at least that's possibly unfair. It has had a succession of notably odd presidents, by which I mean two of them, uh, father and son. But the son is a musician, or so he thinks himself, Fernando. And so this is the reason, the basis for my quip at the top of the show. Turkmenistan being the kind of country it is, Are all the top five songs either by or about the president? No, unfortunately, actually, because that no. would be a fun story. Because, uh, like, you know, you know, he does stuff like, you know, renames the days of the week after he's... Even rapped as well. He does some hip-hop or, as well. Yeah. Ocelots or something. Declared a national holiday in honour of the melon. I think that may literally have happened. But anyway, but he does not actually feature in any of these songs. He doesn't. And in fact, you're going to be surprised about number five. Even I was surprised. It's basically Doja Cat. I mean, the American rapper. She's doing very well. She's doing very well in Turkmenistan. She's doing very well at number five. She must be delighted. We have a little clip of her main single, Paint the Town Rat. I let all that get to my head. I don't care. I paint the town way. Do I glean from this, Fernando, that even were I to go to the not inconsiderable trouble and expense of going all the way to Turkmenistan, I would still not be able to escape that bloody track? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. That's the globalised world we live in. I mean, this is supposed to be the one upside, if indeed there is one, of visiting cloistered, paranoid, walled-off dictatorships. Don't worry. There's always number four for you. Okay. Uh, They are artists from uh, Turkmenistan. It's Jalil and Mad Nazar. Of. And the interesting thing about Turkmenistan, it is really hard to get information from the artists. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I have to say, I have some little notes about the artists, but the song's called Yurek Yadadi, which I've translated, of course, Thank with my you. excellent knowledge of Turkmen. It means he remembered the heart. It's a very somber song. Let's have a listen. <laughs> They also have auto-tune in Turkmenistan, <laughs> of course, Of course they do, since the 80s, you know. Mm. Remember, there's synth-pop there. But to be honest, about Jaleo, I you know, couldn't find out where he was born. Never but mind. all I know, looking at his social media, he loves off-road cars. He Does loves. He, he loves going to trails and using the car in the middle of a... Not, not a waterfall, but you know those little rivers and... Creeks. Exactly, creeks. I think that's a great word. Billabongs, <laughs> as we would call them at home. So I think he's quite an adventurous guy. He's quite adventurous. He likes to go to the gym, very handsome as well. Yeah, that's Jillian So for he's, you. he's a handsome chap who enjoys going to the gym and off-roading. Could, could he not just pursue those hobbies quietly? <laughs> he could, but he's a big star. He's a big star. A lot of a big budget videos as well. I mean, I say big 
budget. Okay, average budget. He, he's an well. He's not a big. He's an average star, is what we're saying. Okay, fine. <laughs> Hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Uh, at number three in Turkmenistan. Number Fernando. three. This is an interesting one, um, Andrew, because I wonder because it's quite. Of course, the majority of the population they are Turkmen, but of mm-hmm. course you have some Uzbeks, you have There's Russians. There's a clue in the name, yes. Exactly. Uh, so they are in fact a Russia, a Russian rap duo. Uh, they sing a type of style called hookah because they are they're eth- ethnically Azerbaijani. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hip hop, but a lot of touches of Arab this is, music. This is quite the Venn diagram at this point. It is. It is a big. Let's just have a listen, right? This is Ham Ali and Navai with Birdie. Только вот привычка, ты к нему как птичка, позовет и ты опять сорвешься по-любому, знаешь. Дура потому что по ночам подушку плачет и опять скучает о нем. Well, they sound a barrel of chuckles. <laughs> exactly. Very somber, right? Mm, that seems to be a recurring theme, Fernando. Well, number two is also a little bit somber, but that's qu- quite an interesting story here because you're going to be surprised about the artist. It's Tom Odell, a British singer. I was just going to say the, the, <laughs> yes. the, the well-known Turkmen name Odell. <laughs> Tom of the, Odell. <laughs> of the Ashgabat Odells, presumably. Of course. Okay. But this song is very interesting. Another Love was released in 2012. But then suddenly this year became a viral hit worldwide because of Ukraine. So a lot of people from Ukraine, they've used this song uh, to remember their homeland. So... And, and, you know, you ask why. I mean, it was a very random, like TikTok, like music these days. Mm -hmm. A song can chart for very random reasons. Uh, So it's a very meaningful song for all Ukrainians. And even Tom Adele, he he discovered that his song suddenly became this symbol uh, for Ukrainians. And he performed for Ukrainian refugees as well. Uh, So even when you look, when you go to YouTube and see the video of the song, there's a link to help a Ukraine crisis fundraiser. It's the random things of the world, but in a way, quite beautiful. It's as well. an extraordinary story, and it has also been a hit in Turkmenistan, apparently. Yeah, number two still. Let's have a listen to Tomodel, Another Love. And I wanna- So an accidental Ukrainian anthem is number two in Turkmenistan. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is beautiful in a way. It's an amazing, it is an extraordinary yeah. story. Um, what is depriving it of top spot? Oh, my God. I do love our next track. It's, <laughs> it's mysterious. It's it's very cool indie pop from Turkmenistan. Cool indie pop from Turkmenistan. And, 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 and even the video, there's someone holding a mirror in a field with a woman looking at you very deep. And she has some uh, kind of a bunch of dried white flowers as well. So hang on. Who's... who's holding the mirror? It, somebody's holding a mirror. You can't see the face of the person. Right and in the mirror, you can see this woman wearing a white veil and some dried white flowers as well. The person with the mirror is not trying to signal to passing aircraft for a lift out <laughs> or anything. I, I have no idea. Okay. But it's all very cool. I love the beat. Shall we have a listen? And he is from Turkmenistan. It's Shad Oves with Ainan, which means exactly. <laughs> Yeah, 
Fernando, there was a boinging noise in there. Is, is that a traditional Turkmen <laughs> instrument well, called the boinger? It's beautiful Turkmen electronica there. You know, some. It it's reminds me. Of, answer to my question, Fernando. <laughs> what was the boinging? I have no idea. I have no idea. But and he's very kind of wholesome. I mean, again, I love looking at people's social media. I think one of his last pictures, he was eating bread made by his mum, and his mum <laughs> looked super happy. We we only have his word for that. Um, was was there any sort of implement anywhere in that photograph that looked like it could be manipulated to emit a sort of boinging noise? Pro- probably. Uh, probably I would say so. And remember, the song's about suffering as well. Any number of punchlines. <laughs> uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you as always for joining us. And for Tall Stories this week, Gregory Scruggs takes us on the Grouse Grind Trail, one of Vancouver's most fabled hikes and a boon to citizens' quality of life. After a short 20-minute bus ride from downtown Vancouver, I have left the city behind and I'm currently in a dusty trailhead at the foot of Grouse Mountain, one of the many peaks that rise straight out of the north shore of Vancouver. And this particular mountain is one of Vancouver's most popular, the peak of Vancouver, they call it. And in the summer, in the non-snow season, there is a trail that will take you to the top. It's called the Grouse Mountain Grind, with an emphasis on the grind. Something like 2,800 steps to the top. They call it nature's stairmaster. And over the course of two and a half kilometers, you gain about 800 meters in elevation. So it's up, up, up. And this trail has become an iconic feature of Vancouver's sporty scene, a place for the athletic set to test their metal and get in a quick uphill cardio workout before heading back to work or meetings or school or or whatever obligations they have down in the city. Uh, It's one of the unique aspects of Vancouver's fabled quality of life, that you are so close to the mountains, you can pop out, head up a forested trail, get your workout in, and be back at your desk in no time. So let's lace up those trainers and hit the trail. I see someone over here wearing a, a purple tank top. It says grind in big letters on the back. I have a feeling this might be a grouse grind regular. Excuse me, uh, what's your name, if you don't mind me asking? My name is Jill Elliott. I am 60, nearly 61 years old. And I was born here on Grouse Mountain in North Vancouver. I lived, born and raised here. I live now in West Vancouver. I grew up here on this mountain, enjoying the skiing on the mountain. Very active person. I'm a kinesiologist and a trainer and a applied neurologist at the moment. So I've always lived a very healthy, active life, coaching sports and being myself a master's athlete my probably entire life I've always enjoyed just being outdoors and love being and living in Vancouver just for everything it has to offer the mountains the golf courses the skiing the running just the nature the beautiful landscape that we BC has to offer so I feel very blessed to be here so what's your strategy for uh, hiking the grass grind one step at a time (laughs) One step at a time. I don't like to push myself before I start. I like to do it. Enjoy doing it as much as I can. Some days it's a little bit slower. It's a little slower. Sometimes I feel like I can push myself. I push myself. 
I'm 60. I want to get a little enjoyment when I do the cross grind. I used to race the cross grind every year. I did the cross grind race about five times in my lifetime. And I can tell you, it's not fun. <laughs> so I just want to do more enjoying it in the fresh air. Yeah, taking in the scenery and just being out in nature and actually being with other people and we're all doing it together. And there is that group kind of a feeling of when you look at everybody else around you, the accomplishment they get from doing it. After I could do the girls grind, definitely 100% the rest of my day will be better. It'll go more smoothly, I'll feel better, I'll have more energy. The endorphins are flowing for the rest of the day after doing the grind, that's for sure. And, you know, just cognitively, you just, everybody feels better when you get to the top. It's my daily Prozac. No antidepressants when you got the gross grind to do. <laughs> I'm at a sign telling me I made it to the quarter mark, but warning me that was the easy section. And in red letters, it says, now comes the hard part. And the trail gets emphasis steeper and narrower from here. But there's only one way to go, and that's up. At regular intervals, there are little, little signs tacked to the trees telling you how far you've gone. We've just passed the halfway mark. So 21 markers down, 19 to go. I can almost taste the top from here. Jill, how are you feeling at this point halfway through? I love hitting the halfway mark. To be honest, it's halfway to me just gets easier. You know the end is coming soon. So I even though it's a little bit steeper, the third is the steepest quarter in the groin. You just gotta use a little more of your leg muscles. You can slow down if you want. I'm now three quarters of the way up the grouse grind and starting to get that jelly-like sensation in the quads and the calves. It's not exactly the staircase that takes you, I don't know, up to the second floor of your home. We're talking roots and rocks and, you know, natural handholds. It's, it's not rock climbing, it's not mountain climbing, but it is certainly uh, a naturally sculpted staircase in many places and definitely proving challenging for folks. There's quite the line ahead of me here. Although there are intrepid moms with their babes in special hiking backpacks. So it really does bring out all walks of life here on the Grouse Mountain Grind. You just, you get to the third, end of the third corridor, and you just get that cool breeze come across your whole body. And you just get that fresh, even when it's smoggy out, you just get that oxygen and freshness that comes over your body. And you know you're coming near the top, because once you get that coolness over your sweaty, hot body, it's just such an exhilarating feeling. And you just know you got a little more to go, and you're going to be done. And just like that, we are quite literally out of the woods. After a little over an hour or so on the trail, suddenly the, the path levels out and the gondola station comes into view. 
Uh, it's a sweet, sweet feeling to know you're at the top and there is a smooth, easy ride down waiting for you after grinding it out on the Grass Mountain Grind. But before I hop the ride back down, I do want to take in this view. It's a bit of a misty morning, a little overcast, but I can see down to the Georgia Strait, the Burrard Inlet, those gorgeous saltwater infusions next to the evergreen covered mountains that make the Vancouver setting truly one of the most beautiful in the world to build a city. You are listening to The Curator and our highlight from our daily show, The Monaco Daily. Most Ugandans cannot recall another president but incumbent, Yoveri Museveni, who has governed erratically and autocratically since 1986. Over the last five years, however, his position has been threatened by Bobby Wine, a pop star turned politician. A new film, Bobby Wine, The People's President, tells the extraordinary story of Bobby's rise from the slums of Kampala to stardom in politics and the risk incurred by himself and his family along the way. Monaco's foreign editor, Alexis Self, sat down with one of the film's directors, Christopher Sharp, and Bobby Wine's wife, Barbie Kiagulani, at Midori House, to find out more about Bobby's story and the documentary. This is a message to the government, government. expressing what's exactly on the people's minds. Barbie, I just want to ask you a bit about you know, what it's like in, in Uganda or what it's been like growing up in Uganda under Museveni. You know, most of your life in common with most of your compatriots has, has been spent under his presidency. And how would you describe his, his leadership? Museveni came to power through a guerrilla war. In 1986, most of us were pretty young. So we grew up knowing Museveni alone. To date, he's the only person we've known as the president of Uganda. In the beginning, he was admirable. Uh, my husband calls him a one-time uh, role model to him. So whatever he said made a lot, a lot of sense. He said the right things to the people. And as time goes on, like they say, power corrupts and corrupts absolutely. Uh, so he got drunk on power and his main duty right now is to just make sure that he stays in power by force, by the use of the gun, just like he came with a gun. So he's using the gun to stick to power. And um, whether we will see an end to Museveni by the gun or by democracy, that's the duty of the Ugandans. But right now, he is such a nightmare. And his leadership is something that the young people are working towards relieving themselves of. Mm. And and as you say, you know, he rules by the gun and, and your documentary was shot over five years. And, and, you know, a lot of the time, the camera people are, are in very dangerous situations. Uh, Christopher, you know, what were the logistics of, of filming? And, and, you know, were there any times when you considered halting production or, you know, what, what was that kind of process like? Well, as you say, we were filming over five years. We ended up with 4,000 hours of footage. We got footage from all sorts of different people. Um, there was obviously Bobby's always surrounded by people filming, some on their iPhones, some with cameras. So we had a, a 
huge amount of material. Uh, my co-director, Moses Boeo, did some pretty amazing work as well. He was with Bobby and Barbie a lot of the sort of crucial times. And um, it was violent. It was extremely difficult and violent. I think what made our job a little bit easier was there's just so many people filming around Bobby. It's very difficult for the authorities to know which ones are important and which ones aren't. The level of violence we filmed is not shown in the film. The, you know, Bobby said when he first watched the film, he said, why did you make Museveni look so good? And I was like, what are you talking about? But he, what he was talking about is actually what people went through and the amount of murders and torture and abuse was far greater than anything you watch in the film. When we started editing, we just, at one point, we thought this is unwatchable. You, you can't, people won't be able to sit through this and take in the story. So we really scaled back the violence. But it's really horrific. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I wanted to talk to you about that because, you know, the feeling now, you know, all of these Netflix documentaries is, you know, however kind of horrific the content, you know, always seems that the kind of narrativizing it, filmmakers want to always end on a on a happy note or a positive note. And, you know, the feeling after watching this film, there's lots of optimism in there. But, you know, actually... Uganda and, and Bobby are at the end have, have been through all of this suffering and there doesn't seem to be much light at the end of the tunnel. When you were making it, were you conscious of the fact that you wanted to end on, a, on, on an optimistic note or did you just want to portray events you know, as they were? Well, I knew that it wouldn't end well. And in a way, the, where we got to in the end was better than I thought because I generally thought that Bobby would be killed or imprisoned. So the fact that we got to the end of the film and Bobby was still alive, in a way, felt like a bit of a triumph. I know it sounds extraordinary. The other thing that Bobby and Barbie are very optimistic people, and that's that's how we left it at the end, with Bobby saying, it's going to be all right, you know, I'm with you, we're going to carry on, we're going to pick ourselves up, and eventually we're going to get rid of this guy. Somebody had to speak for us. And uh, people thought I had the loudest voice around. Not because I know everything, not because I'm the most intelligent, but maybe because of the music that kind of projected our plight. So when they asked me to stand and represent them, I agreed. And what about you, Barbie? I mean, you know, it's it's you know, I've seen what you've been through for the past few years and you know that your husband and your your kids have been through what what's the message of of this movie for you just like christopher said that the main duty of the producers and the editors was to show what is happening in Uganda unfiltered uncensored and edited just the way it is. So we are hoping that this film will show the world what exactly is happening back home and the struggle of the young people for freedom and democracy and their desire to be included in the leadership of our country. Also want uh, the people, especially the international community, the taxpayers, to know what they are financing back home.
We want them to know that they are financing our murder and our death. We want them to know that every little contribution they make home is not actually doing what they send the money to do, but it is used to buy machines and tear gas and guns and bullets to finish us all. And then we want the world to see the hope that the young people in Uganda have. They have hope that very soon there will be an end to the dictatorship and that they will also have space to determine what they want for themselves in the leadership. You know, your, your film and Bobby's message is, is about another way between military rule and autocratic dictatorship in, in Africa. You know, are you hopeful that, that the arc of, of history is bending towards pluralism and democracy in Africa? You know, given that the, the past few months have, have been so chaotic and, and especially in, in Uganda as well. Um, the past few years? Unless we have uh, the democratic countries insisting and spreading democracy towards Africa, then there is not so much work that's going to be done. We look up to the more developed countries and hope that they will teach us how to make sure democracy is done the right way. So unless we have the bigger democracies coming up and influencing and making sure democracy stays and is done the right way in Africa, then I don't see us go anywhere. It is sad. And, you know, the next election is scheduled for 2026. Yes. Will, will Bobby run? And, and how would that be possible? 2026 is a bit far away. A lot happens in a day in Uganda. Anything can happen, anything can change. But as we stand, he has said that he would be willing to stand in 2026. But until we get on that day and he is elected or he's on the ballot, ballot paper, we cannot say that he is going to be able to stand for presidency. In the end, we remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. When the sun's out and the mercury rises, there's only one thing to do. Dive into a body of invigorating water. Monocle's new title, Swim in Sun, features the best spots to cool off in. Whether it's a city lido, glamorous beach club, or tranquil lake surrounded by trees, we'll have you dreaming of your next splash. The restorative, life-affirming power of being around water is undeniable. Be it through cutting laps at a hotel pool, swimming out to a floating dock, or reclining nearby with a glass of crisp rosé. So sit back, flick through, and discover Monocle's favorite places to take a dip around the world. Featuring beautiful photography, a smart linen cover, and essays penned by our favorite writers. Every page is packed full of inspiration and will leave you feeling salty and sun-kissed. So grab a towel and jump in. The water is just perfect. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. From Monaco on Design this week, we ask, where is mobility headed? We explore the intersection of style, sustainability and innovation with Microlino co-founder Merlin Albotter. Your dad invented the micro-scooter. Yeah, indeed. So, so the little three-wheeled scooter that if you've got a child, I'm sure, yeah, you're nodding, nodding away there. They're, they're kind of everywhere. But 
How do you go from that as a family business to designing this? It's quite a big leap, right? Hugely. Yeah. That's, what, that's what you're here for to unpack. Yeah, exactly. So as you mentioned, I mean, the, our company history is uh, completely different. So we're absolutely not from the automotive uh, industry. We are more from micromobility. And actually, I mean, micromobility is now super a buzzword. But my father, when he founded his company in 1999, he called his company Micromobility Systems. At that time, micromobility was nothing. So... He was, was, uh, he was referring to the people riding the scooters, not necessarily the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he was way ahead of, uh, of uh, his time, I would say. But I mean, the connection to the car, obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a far leap, but it's still mobility, right? And everything started actually in 2015, actually out of a gag. It was a PR gag. We said like, okay, we have scooters, so there's not a lot to design, right? You have a T-bar and the deck, and yeah, that's it regarding design. So... We wanted to show a bit how we see the future of mobility and maybe with a product that we can design a bit more, have a bit more volume. And that's, let's say, when we uh, ventured into, let's say, checking some statistics about general mobility. And there was some kind of like breaking point when we saw that was a very interesting study that said, uh, on average, there are 1.2 people uh, per car driving a daily distance of uh, 30 kilometers a day. And also the average speeds in uh, urban areas is between 30 and 40 kilometers an hour. So incredibly inefficient in so terms Incredibly of- inefficient. And we said, okay, I mean, if, we, if you look around, we realized the conventional car that you see on a daily basis is actually totally over-engineered. And the idea was, okay, how would a car need to look like to actually cater exactly for those everyday use cases? And you drew inspiration. This is a story that's in the, in the latest issue of Monocle. Our Ed Stocker, who's somewhere, actually reported this. I was a little bit, little bit jealous he got to do it, but he trailed you for a day and you went to the designer's studios. Tell us, tell us about that taking form, how you actually conceptualise this vehicle and stripped away those inefficiencies. Yeah, so as we said before, it's actually not a car, so it's really a bit of a hybrid uh, between a, a motorbike and a car. So it's also very lightweight, so space for two people, and it only weighs around 550 kg, which is like a third of standard electric car nowadays. So it's, in terms of sustainability, cannot be uh, beaten, to be honest. And design-wise, we took inspiration uh, a bit from the past, actually. So we uh, looked at, okay, what has been developed already? There's Ed, sorry. Exactly. And we took inspirations from the bubble cars of the 50s, which were, especially also in Germany, very popular after the Second World War because people didn't have money to buy a, a real car. So that was kind of like the alternative. And so we said, okay, I mean, this... The concept as is, is very timeless, but they completely disappeared and we kind of like thought, okay, let's relaunch it and bring it back to uh, reality. I guess you, you've designed this entirely new sort of vehicle, but I'm, I'm also curious where, what role this can play in, I guess, changing our cities and, and changing the way that we might move around them. Because sure, it's, it's, it's well and good to have these, you know, people buying these and driving them, but you, you're also competing with other people driving far bigger vehicles on the road. What role can Microlino play in, I guess, a cultural shift as well? Yeah, I mean, honestly, of course, we are not completely revolutionizing mobility. I mean, it's, it's a small part of the puzzle, but we believe that, especially in urban areas, cars just need to get much, much lighter because it's a very easy physics example, right? Uh, if you, the more weight you carry, the more energy is being used. And I always bring the example to, to kind of like create an image is that Our vehicle, including two passengers, battery, full trunk, weighs less than the battery of an electric SUV. 
So and I mean, this is just insane that nobody really thinks about it. I mean, everyone is talking about, well, electric cars being the solution, etc. And yes, they are, but not if they're two and a half tons of weight, because that doesn't really make sense. We need to be much, much more efficient. And that's a bit, let's say, our mantra that we, that we try to enforce is that there's a much more efficient way to move around, especially in cities, and also space-saving, right? I mean, the car is built so that you can actually cross-park, so you can park three microlinos on one parking spot. So those are like little features where we say the car, in, in my opinion, a classic car in, um, in the city will become less important, and that's the role as it is. I mean, there are super examples in, in, in Paris, what we heard before with like uh, limited to 30 kilometers an hour. I mean, this is exactly what is perfect for a vehicle like this. Um, and I mean, we don't need those big SUVs to, to get from A to B to do five kilometers distance to get some, some groceries. I mean, that's time should be over. So you've got 150 prospective customers in here. Sell it to us more than, I, I understand the appeal in terms of like the efficiency of it, but what, what's the driving experience? Like, why would you want to get behind the wheel? And maybe just quickly, Ed Stocker has driven one. I'm giving you two minutes. Have a think about, you, you talk about your driving experience in two minutes, but Merlin, sell it to us. Yeah, honestly, I mean, it's a very small car, so it's like a bit of go-kart feeling that you have while driving. Obviously, you need to try it out. We actually have a second car out there, so the ones who are super curious, we can do a small test drive as well. But yeah, ultimately, it's it's an electric car, so you have a lot of, uh, let's say, torque. And really, the crazy thing about it, and for sure, Ed, uh, agree with me on that, is that you just get so many looks on the streets because it's and, and positive looks, right? It's not like uh, in, you're driving in a 911 oh, I'm or into whatever. This. This it's like a... people look at you like, oh my God, this is, you're such a cool guy driving in a thing like that. You're crazy. And it's really, yeah, you get into so many discussions. Sometimes also a bit annoying when you just want to buy some groceries and you're stuck <laughs> in your car like, yeah, I'm actually just <laughs> running some errands or whatever. But it's, yeah, it's really fun to, fun to drive and cool experience. And it, it has a huge trunk space. I mean, we can really? check. Yeah, you, you fit in two big... Um, Bodies? Like sorry, luggage no, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Like, yeah, like luggage uh, pieces in there, plus two handbags. So almost... Uh, I mean, Ed, you're notoriously uncool. Did you feel cool driving around in it? Is that, is that an accurate reflection? I don't know. Can people hear me? Um, <laughs> It, well, it goes pretty fast, actually, as well. That's one thing you haven't said, because a lot of these tiny cars that you see on the streets in places like Milan, why they go like 30, 40 kilometers an hour, this goes up to 90, and you feel, you feel like you're going quite fast. So I did feel quite cool, especially when people were like looking and smiling and wanting to engage in conversation. The only thing is you do definitely feel a bit of bumpiness on those Italian roads. Uh, yeah, they're horrible in touring now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's got some zip. And, listeners, I have great news if you're a fan of the menu. The show is back with a new host. Although we miss Marcos Hippie dearly, we're also going to enjoy a lot Chiara Rimella. You know her. Uh, she's a former culture editor for Monaco Magazine, and she's still very much involved with Confect Magazine and other projects here at Monaco. This is her introduction. She spoke to the head of Monaco Radio, Tom Edwards. A warm welcome to this very special edition of the menu. Keen listeners will know that Marco Sippi was the steward of this programme, the custodian of the menu for definitely 10 years or so. But today, drumroll, we have a new host for you to meet. Listeners around the world, the new host of the menu. It's my great pleasure to welcome her to her own programme. <laughs> 
It's Chiara Rimella, Chiara. Welcome. I am beyond delighted <laughs> to be here. Now, listen, this is highly exciting. You are the new host. Big Sammy moccasins to fill. The big man, <laughs> the champ, Marcus Hippie. He's moved on to Pastors New. But you're, I'm sure, going to be the perfect host because you have a deep understanding of food and drink. And not just from your motherland, but from a, a, wider, a, a wider region. But how are you feeling about being the, the captain of the good ship menu going forwards. Well, stepping into my Italian leather brogues <laughs> and, and putting the moccasins aside. Oh, of course, very big shoes to fill. Finnish-sized feet. Literally. <laughs> he did have, literally. He'd had big feet, as well as <laughs> um, with personality. But one thing that listeners of Monocle might not know, because I used to recover a bit of a more of a cultural persona here at Monocle, is that I eat happily a lot <laughs> frequently with much, much gusto. So it is an absolute delight to be able to finally indulge my stomach in this way because eating is one of the great passions of my life. It genuinely is. Recently, a friend of mine asked me to list the five true joys of my existence. And she started off reeling hers and smelling flowers and going for a run. And I listed eating out at number one. And then I kind of stopped because I was like, what else is there? This is it. Well, let me ask you, of course, our listeners will know your Italian heritage. It's a bit like the book, you know, Never Trust the Skinny Italian Chef. Are there any Italians anywhere within or without Italy that don't have that cultural attachment to food, that love, not just of Italian food, but a curiosity also about other foods. It, it's a cliche, perhaps, but like many cliches, it's rooted in truth. I've never met any Italians that aren't foodies. Are there any? I've never met any. I honestly have to say that for me, for us, growing up, life, everyday life is so intrinsically connected to food that it's impossible to think of a way in which it wouldn't imprint you, like in a kind of Lorenzian way since the moment you're born. Because our life revolves around food. It's so funny when you go to Italy, most frequently, if you overhear somebody talking on the phone on the street, they're either complaining about something or talking about their next meal, what they're going to go buy, what they're going to cook. I find myself very frequently thinking about my next meal or talking about my next meal whilst I'm having the preceding meal. It never stops. It's just like the thing that punctuates your life. And it really goes to the core of Italian identity, to my identity. I mean, again, this is a bit of a cliche, but it is so true of Italians. And it's definitely true of my personal history. Your grandmother's food just remains in your kind of subconscious memory for the rest of your life and nothing will ever come close to being as good as that. So from the moment I tasted my grandmother's lasagna or her tallarin, that was it. I was just you know, marked for life. I was going to ask you about the, like, nonna's uh, pasta. You've obviously been in the UK for a very long time. You're very well travelled. When you engage with Italian food here in the UK or in your travels, do you have to kind of separate that off from what would happen back home and what happens here? Is it kind of good for London? And how does it work? When you choose spots, do you steer clear of these slightly kind of ersatz, authentic, in inverted commas, Italians? Do you like it when it's... Italian food, but with an Anglo spin, does that make you wince? How, how do you sort of engage with your food when you're interacting with it internationally? 
I'm a very different eater in Italy than I am in London. In Italy, I'm very much keen for either very traditional places, and there's a lot of them, uh, or places that are trying to do Italian food in a modern way that is interesting, which is happening increasingly over the last few years. I love eating in London, and I'm a very different eater here uh, because I'm so much more of a open-minded eater here. I eat Italian in London, and I tend to prefer anglicized versions of it because I'm not trying to replicate the experience that I know and that I'll be comparing it unjustly to. But I have a voracious approach to eating in London as well, in the sense that I make a point of almost always trying a place once and then always trying somewhere new. I hardly ever go back to the same spot, apart from a very, very few select places that have some sort of spot in my heart. They don't necessarily need to be the places where I've had the best meals in terms of the quality of the food, but just places that occupy that kind of spot in your heart that has got to do with hospitality as well as it does with the dish itself. Just places where you feel good and you know you can rely on, you can go back. And there's a few of those in my little black book. But other than that, in London, it's very much like a constant voyage of discovery. And the amazing thing about London is that I am able to do that. I go out eating around three times a week. It is what I blow most of my income on. And I am able to essentially do that almost never repeating the same place I eat at because we're in London and this is so exciting. And I'm thankful to Monocle because I've been able to travel the world and eat my way through it. (laughs) But it is one of the most incredible ways of discovering a place. And one of my favourite places in the world is Singapore because of that, because you go to Singapore and suddenly in this tiny little island, you can experience some of the best Asian food of the continent, all concentrated in a small little kind of dot. So it's very efficient. And I was able to kind of get my head around a lot of dishes. And But, you know, again, the way that you eat changes depending on where you are. And I love eating on my own. And I've eaten on my own a lot on travels. I love the way that you can eat on your own in Japan. I love the different way that you can eat on your own in Sweden. I love how in some places it's really hard to eat on your own. And so you end up chatting to someone because people will just involve you into somewhere. There's such a an element of exhilarating discovery to food and of community, of connection to people. It's just the best thing in the world. And finally, for some chilled vibes, I hope you're listening in a very chilled manner this weekend. I had the pleasure to speak with Angus Dowling from Babe Rainbow, the psychedelic band from Byron Bay in Australia. Let's have a listen. Angus from Babe Rainbow, what a pleasure talking to you. I'm a big fan of the band. I love the vibes. It takes me to Byron Bay in Australia. Uh, But first of all, remind us from the beginning of Babe Rainbow. I know you were one of the founding uh, members. Uh, When when was that? Tell us a bit more, Angus. Yeah, the band started maybe close to nine or ten years ago. Just local, a few local lads. We all worked on a farm together and naturally just became good buddies and best brothers. And now, yeah, 10 years later, we've got the band kicking on. I mean, it's literally kicking on. I know you're about to go uh, to the US for a tour in a selected uh, places as well. And it's quite interesting. I mean, I know you're based in Australia. There's a lot of kind of influence from there, but you became a little bit of an international band in a way. We just have a lot of similarities with American, West Coast Californians, 
in particular and I just seem to um, naturally, you know, parallel each other. So we kind of spend a bit of time there and always pick up something, come bring it back here and share the love. Well, exactly. And you, and you mentioned the Americans, but there's even more to your music. There's a little bit of kind of surf pop from France as well. For this, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, no, right. Very right. I like that you brought that up. Yeah, because I definitely see the connection because I, I, I like this kind of surf pop from France as well. But in the new... <laughs> In the new EP, Mushroom, tell us a bit about the influences of, of that EP in particular. Yeah, we were just trying to experiment with some newer sounds and different sort of skate landscapes and textures and stuff like that and breakbeats and drum machines and a little bit more um, sort of electronica in there. And that kind of just went through our crystal and came out the rainbow. And even the festival that, that you're playing in the US, will there be mainly new tracks? Are you going to play some of the old ones as well? Tell us a bit more about Rainbow Rock in general. Yeah, so it's something we've always just like the sound of, Rainbow Rock. Getting a little community of great eyes together. And it just, yeah, eventuated, manifested over in LA, which is cool. Good place for it. Ideally, we'll do it back in Australia too, in Byron, to see how things flow. But Yeah, so it's just some great up-and-coming artists, mainly LA-based, I'm pretty sure, just sort of hand-picked by us and some buddies over there. And we're really excited because we've never seen any of the acts before either. So I think it's just, yeah, a nice little collective of rock and roll. And by the way, talking still about the Mushroom EP, one of my favorite tracks, I don't know, for some reason I love Obsession, you know, there's a, oh, a gentle breeze yeah. in there. I love it. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we try you know, keep it calm and relaxed these days as we're getting older. And that's just sort of something our kids, you know, will listen to and they can sleep tightly, you know, knowing those groovy tunes. So, yeah, something a little bit less performancey. It's a nice aspect to the album, to the EP. And one thing, because actually, Angus, I am going to Australia for the first time this year, late October, uh, and I'm considering mm. going to Byron Bay. T tell us about something about the, the place, how special it is, because in a way, even the name of the band is kind of connected, I mean, to the region, perhaps, I'm not sure if it's exactly Byron Bay, but I know there's a coastal yeah. town with the name, right? Yeah, 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 no, definitely. It was established back in the 70s, a group of college students and uni students moved up from Sydney and they just found an old town and bought all of the shops and created this cooperative and had a huge festival called the Aquarius Festival in 73 and that just mushroomed into this whole vibrant rainbow community around here and yeah, we've just sort of it's still alive and strong 30, 40 years on so we're just sort of carrying on the flame well, so and, I... yeah, you're going to have a great time I think you should definitely come here Well, just because you said it, I will, I will go now, Angus, as well. So, um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe you told yeah, me yeah. That you t you told me that maybe Rainbow Rock could go to Australia, right? 
yeah, yeah, definitely. Sooner or later, I'm sure of it. Yeah, we're just, you know, the landscape is so inspiring around here. It just, it's, you know, there's areas where the hippies called Psychedelic Valley where they used to have rock and roll and magic mushrooms and all sort of wonderful natural organic highs just popping up everywhere. Yeah, it's, it goes hand in hand with music, this place. By the way, one thing that I'm enjoying about Babe Rainbow these days is that you're releasing, I know you released an EP earlier this year, and now there's another one. It's nice. Perhaps, you know, you're not quite there yet for a full-on album, but, you know, I think EPs is such a great thing for the fans, right? Do, do, you, do you enjoy that yeah, kind of strategy yeah. of, of releasing music via EPs? I think, I think so. I think, like, generally, historically, um, putting together albums takes a lot longer time for some reason. And possibly we've just got a bit more savvy with you know audio equipment and stuff like that but it seems to be just much fresher experience putting out four songs at a time and just not you know not over engineering a whole album but it's definitely going to come that in the end but yeah no it's been it's been a lot funner just sort of keeping the pulse going that's fantastic uh, listen angus a pleasure talking to you thank you so much uh, for chatting with us no worries, my friend. Thank you so much for the call. Oh, no problem. And yeah, maybe maybe I'll see you in Byron Bay. <laughs> I'm very yeah, excited. Up. Very yeah, excited we'll to here. go. <laughs> <laughs> nice, my friend. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. Thank you.